Fed officials have two mandates, and we're here today with their report card. Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of February 20th, 2023, and Julia and I are back to discuss no surprise here, the Fed. There's a reason that the Fed has been front and center in almost every market conversation this year and last year too. And we'd like to provide a report card on how things are going. It's the Fed's world and we're all just living in it. Or at least that's how it feels sometimes. That's fair. The Fed's overarching goal is to promote economic growth and stability. And so it's hard to overstate just how important the Fed is to the economy and to markets. But the reason I called on you today, Julia, is because in the past few weeks, we've gotten notable data on jobs and inflation, and those directly pertain to the Fed's what's called dual mandate. And so I wanted to dive into each of those mandates together. Let's do it. All right, well, let's start by defining these mandates. The Fed is instructed to maintain, number one, maximum employment, and number two, stable prices. So let's start with maximum employment. There are a lot of misconceptions as to what that means. So maybe straighten it out for us. Sure. Maximum employment refers to a scenario in which everyone who wants a job has a job. It does not mean that there is a 0% unemployment rate. That is impossible. And it also doesn't provide for any economic flexibility. There's always going to be some level of frictional unemployment in the healthiest economy as people move between jobs, take some time off, level up their skills or enter new fields. That's a really good point about no way there's a 0% unemployment rate. But we can also define maximum employment in a way that links to the Fed's second mandate, which is price stability. Maximum employment is the highest level of employment that an economy can sustain without generating unwelcome inflation. So, Julia, would you say that the Fed is succeeding in its maximum employment goal? Yes and no. Pretty much everyone who wants a job has a job. Great. But it's also very clear that we have wage-led inflation on our hands. 517,000 jobs were created in January. Wage growth is decelerating, but still running at 4.4% year-on-year. That's well above the 2.4% rate average of the past 10 years before the pandemic. So we've actually pretty clearly gone beyond the ideal maximum level of employment because there is unwelcome inflation being generated by how tight the labor market is. All right, great point. So if one of the Fed's goals was to generate maximum employment, they might have overshot it on, on this labor side. And I will say that given a once in a century disruption to labor that we saw during the pandemic, we might cut the Fed a little bit of a break on that one. Yeah, as I like to work into my conversations at least once a day. It's a really hard time to be Jerome Powell. Oh, isn't that the truth? Well, let's go back to linking the employment mandate to the inflation side of the Fed's mandate, because the Fed is supposed to find a level of employment that doesn't create unwelcome inflation. So how would you define unwelcome inflation? 
pretty much any inflation above or notably below the Fed's 2% long-term inflation target. So above or below, that's pretty critical. So hint here, if we take the January figures that came out last week for inflation, today's price growth is running at about 6.4% year on year. And that's after a peak of 9% in June. So this is very much above target and very much unwelcome. January's inflation figures did not surprise to the downside, especially on services inflation, aside from just rent. So it was a reminder that inflation might not obediently return to target as quickly as the market would like. Ooh, yes. Well, then let's get right into it. Inflation targeting. The Fed's inflation target has been a hot, hot, hot topic among we practitioners over the past couple of years because 2% has been an elusive goal for the Fed in terms of targeting inflation. And in the post-financial crisis era, inflation was actually stubbornly below target to the point where everyone from Japan to Europe to the U.S. was worried about structurally low economic growth looking ahead. And then the post-pandemic period seemed to give us all a chance to let inflation run moderately above target for a period of time, though obviously this slipped out of control pretty quickly. Yeah, what you're referring to is called a symmetric target. The idea that because inflation ran below target for many, many years, inflation could run above target potentially for many, many years. But on average, it would equate to that 2% target over the combined period. The Fed has actually now put a formal policy approach to this called FAIT, F-A-I-T, Flexible Average Inflation Targeting. Yeah, so the Fed had tragic timing on adopting this policy. They completed their last review of monetary policy in the spring of 2020 and were reacting in part to the previous 10 years where inflation had been below its 2% goal and everyone was worried about that. And so we were just getting to the point where, as you mentioned, the Fed could test out letting inflation run a little hot this time around to make a longer term flexible average. And yikes is what happened. And so it's no surprise then that some people have asked if that new framework, again, that they had just adopted is going to work in the future, or if maybe the Fed got a little too flexible with its inflation targeting. Yes, but there have also been a lot of questions asked about whether the Fed is considering changing the inflation target itself away from 2%. People have been asking if the Fed's going to move it up to 25 or 3%, and the Fed's response has always been a unequivocal, staunch no. And there's a reason for this. I actually bristle when I hear other economic commentators or investors say that 2% is a random target. It's not. There's lots of research that's gone into that 2% inflation number. And that research found that 2% is about Goldilocks. It's not so low that businesses can't give their workers a raise every now and then, but it's also not so high that inflation factors into households' everyday decisions. In fact, research shows that any inflation figure between around negative 1% and positive 2% inflation, and we just don't notice inflation at all. Well, we're certainly noticing it today at 6.4%. Exactly. So above that 2%, you start to notice and it's painful. And so getting back to your previous point, the Fed's 2% inflation target remains firmly in place for the foreseeable future. And it's one of the reasons why many global central banks have that 2% number, even though different countries' economies are so different. So that takes us to a different angle of this conversation that I think would be helpful to discuss. 
The issue with the two mandates that the Fed has, as our listeners has probably caught on, is almost on a structural basis that they can conflict with each other. That idea that inflation and unemployment move inversely, it's an economic concept called the Phillips curve. And the best example of how this creates a trade-off in the Fed's dual mandate is what we're dealing with right now. Inflation is high, so the Fed is falling behind on its price stability mandate, while it actually probably overshot on its maximum employment mandate. And in order to bring down inflation in that aim of price stability, economic growth is going to need to cool. It is starting to cool. And the labor market is going to need to soften, meaning the Fed will need to loosen its grip on that part of its mandate, the jobs mandate. Now, that begs a question about priorities, because the Fed implicitly needs to decide which of its mandates is more important at any given time. But the Phillips curve concept you mentioned doesn't always hold. Take the post-financial crisis period, for example, when inflation was arguably too low and unemployment was also very low at that time. So I actually have a fun little story here if we have time. There's always time for story time. <laughs> All right. So the Fed has not always had a dual mandate. I had a lot of fun researching this, actually. The concept of what the Fed should be responsible for was really hotly debated after World War II. You had millions of soldiers coming home, and there were questions at the policy level about whether the government had a role in guaranteeing job availability. So this was debated in Congress for quite some time. And in 1977, the dual mandate, including not just price stability, but also the jobs portion of this maximum employment, it became an official part of the Federal Reserve Act. But there were a lot of lawmakers who still wanted more explicit targets to ensure that there were going to be sufficient jobs available pretty much at all times. And this was in the 1970s when inflation was no joke. Yeah, so if that was in the 70s, I bet the 80s didn't sit too well. No, they did not. Paul Volcker's Fed was able to bring down inflation from 13% in 1980 to 3% in 1983, but unemployment rose to a post-war high of 10% over that period. There was a lot of debate in this time about what the Fed's mandate should be, and a lot of people wanted a bigger focus on jobs for understandable reasons. But eventually, that focus on keeping inflation under control, sticking to the price stability mandate, did return the economy to a more stable environment. So interesting. And let me just give a side note here that the emphasis that the Fed has on the labor market, the dual mandate, is unique among central banks. Most central banks around the world have just one mandate, the price stability or inflation side of things. But in the U.S., that legacy of being so focused on jobs really hasn't shifted, even over decades. And, and look, there is some logic to having a dual mandate. The most pernicious cause of inflation is wage growth, typically referred to as a wage price spiral. In other words, when the labor market is too hot, as is the case now, inflation several months down the line as higher wages work their way to workers' wallets and into stronger spending is liable to stay hot too. And that's why Powell has essentially been saying that people will need to lose some jobs in order to keep inflation under control. And so a question we've been hearing a lot from clients or other investors is how bad the job situations will have to be before we can claim victory on inflation, recognizing that it's going to take some time. What makes this balance really difficult to strike is the fact that monetary policy comes with a significant time lag before it takes effect on the economy. Yeah, it's such a good point. And we've heard a lot of criticism of the Fed in the past year, and it usually centers around this timing or this policy lag bit that you're highlighting. The Fed can only know in hindsight 
that it's made the right choices or the wrong ones. And in the meantime, there's a lot of dissent. Some say the Fed was too accommodative for too long after the pandemic, and some argue that they tightened too much afterwards or they're doing so now. And some argue that they're now too late to ease as economic growth starts to slow. You certainly can't make everyone happy, that is for sure. When there's a policy lag of what, 12 months or more, it's really difficult to assess policy impact, especially because the Fed is operating with a lag, but the market is reacting immediately to those policy changes. That's very true. And we have to keep in mind that if central bankers, just like investors, are uncertain about how the economy will evolve in the months and quarters ahead, then they have to assess and balance the risks right now, but then also those risks to the medium and longer term. And that's part of why we are where we are today. Julia, you mentioned that we're feeling inflation at 6.4% year on year in our everyday lives. It's influencing our decisions at the grocery store or when we think about a vacation. And inflation of this kind, it can cause economic harm in the medium term. So much so that the Fed is saying the impact of inflation and the risk that that inflation poses to the economy is actually a bigger risk than slowing the labor market. Only time will tell. That brings us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And we spent a lot of time today on the structural background behind the choices that the Fed is making today. But as Julia just said, the Fed is operating under the understanding that its policy will take effect with a lag, but the market reacts immediately. Case in point, as the Fed and other central banks raised rates all through last year, the equity and bond markets immediately responded. Valuations took a big old hit, earnings guidance trended down, price action got ugly. But on the economic side, the impacts of higher interest rates weren't necessarily felt severely, at least not yet or right away. So for example, many listed companies had extended their debt maturity in the pandemic, and so their borrowing costs didn't actually rise as astronomically as the Fed was hiking. But in 2023, if we look ahead for this year, monetary policy that was enacted in 2022 now has time to filter through the economy in a very fundamental way. It's expected to slow demand, slow inflation more durably, and it is also likely to impact corporate fundamentals. And that is why we have been pounding the pavement with a more cautious tone on adding risk in the current relief rally. We believe that more impacts from higher rates and slowing economic growth have yet to be felt in corporate fundamentals with potential impacts on both public and private equity and credit. So while opportunities abound, yields are higher, we do see reasons to be optimistic in the markets. We're being cautious in our approach to that optimism. Julia, thanks so much for all the fun this afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up next, the minutes from the Fed's February 1st meeting will come out on Wednesday. And given the perceived dovishness of Chair Powell's comments at that meeting, the minutes can help shed light on what the committee is really thinking about a recent loosening in financial conditions. But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time.
Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamox and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nye Life Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nye Life Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.